Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, one of the towering figures of the podcast world and indeed of the comedy world in general, a writer and actor on Mr. Show, along with Zach Galifianakis, one of the co-creators of Between Two Ferns, and perhaps most importantly, the host of Comedy Bang Bang, which is celebrating its 500th episode. Hello, Scott Ackerman. Hello, Mike. One of the towering figures of the podcast world. That's like world's tallest ant. Mm, well, it was it was at one point. <laughs> it was at one point, and I think you were doing it at that point. Mm-hmm. But um, it's not anymore. I saw an interview that you did with like CNBC or something not that long ago. Why are you watching CNBC in your off hours? It's just pretty much where I get all of my information. <laughs> I like uh, I, all I your stock tips. I don't like to get too deep into the news, but um, but I saw- CNBC is just the sweet spot. Just yeah. <laughs> turn on CNBC for five minutes a day. I just like headlines, mm-hmm. really. You yeah. know, and I just I constantly want um, uh, lots of news with very little depth, with an extreme liberal slant, with a whole bunch of uh, stock market thrown in. So you can <laughs> right. see I'm I'm pretty much the target demo for them. Um, and an interviewer who is a professional journalist, I guess, and an interview were asked you if you can make money off of podcasting and i believe that question was posed in the year 2016 yes that was last year also that interviewer before the show said hey i'm gonna ask you who you think uh the next great up-and-coming comedian is Uh, maybe you have some ideas i don't know someone like amy schumer or something like that (laughs) i was like she's like a movie star what are you talking about and that was repeated (laughs) On air. Right. She didn't even take the hint from that. Yeah. Um, yeah, you can make money in podcasting, strangely enough, if mm-hmm. you have enough listeners. I mean, yeah. uh, much like radio and, and uh, satellite radio, if enough people listen to you, advertisers are interested. Funny how that works. Yeah. So um, I'm told you know uh, Doug Benson? I do, yes. Is he on the show frequently? Uh, Doug is on the other show that I'm on, the Jason Ellis show. Right. Week- weekly when he's around, he's been on this show. And actually, when he was on this show, he came to the conclusion that you and I are voice doppelgangers. Oh, that's interesting. You know, who is a- an exact match to me is Adam Scott, actually, because we have a show together that we do uh-huh. called You Talking You Two to Me, which is about the band U2. Sure. And so we- much to talk about. I mean, <laughs> there people, is. people have barely scratched the surface with those guys. <laughs> we, I think they're going to go far. It's a very popular show. Uh, we actually interview the band. And oh, that's um, great. but Adam and I we co-host it, and people cannot tell our our voices apart. So that's interesting that you and I have similar. I don't know if I necessarily hear it, but um, yeah, you're a little more like up here. And... Wow, see, I was going to say that about you. Maybe we are the same. <laughs> oh, oh, it's like listening to a mirror. Well, that's what Quiet. I figure is that if uh, if people. Um, like the sound of our voices then then this is great but if not then this is this, this is double trouble for is, them this is hell in stereo really mm-hmm. doug benson one of my oldest friends in comedy i met him in 1995 and he saw my act and then i i chanced upon him in a mr show a line for a mr show taping and he was in the vip section and he said hey get over here 
And I said, oh, I, that's the VIP section. He goes, no, you're a comedian. And it was the first time I ever felt like a comedian. Oh, a that's professional that's a comedian nice said that I was one. Give me some dirt on him. He is such a raging son of a bitch. I know, right? <laughs> it's amazing how long he's been able to uh, pass off this nice guy persona. Yeah, this whole stoner thing. It's an act. We know what's <laughs> really in that pipe. He's actually fiercely anti-drug, and he's <laughs> and he's super weird about it. Yeah, it's like a to catch a predator kind of lure. <laughs> So, uh, I, I guess I didn't realize this. You actually did start your podcast as a terrestrial radio show here with Indy? With uh, Indy 103.1, which mm. uh, is a Los Angeles radio, or was a Los Angeles radio station. It Belo was but beloved, not much listened to. Yeah, it was really great. It was mm -hmm. my favorite radio station. Mm -hmm. I loved it. And then it went under. That was a radio station that proved that quality radio cannot work. Yes. Because they actually, every single person who'd ever been like, dude, I just feel like if you had the right mix of like The Cure and The Pixies and stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, I know it wouldn't be the biggest, but man, it would work. It would work. Well, no. It no. slowly started disintegrating into, uh, they were doing a lot of f flashback stuff, which is when you know a radio station is in trouble. How's that? So they started playing like Green Day and uh -huh. Nirvana a lot. Uh, and then they went under almost immediately after that. So uh, they were, they went to internet radio. Uh, and they were looking for DJs because they had to fire all the DJs because they couldn't pay them. And so my friend suggested me because I didn't care about getting paid. And so, yeah, I started there and I did it there for a year while I podcast it. And I was looking at the numbers of all of the, the people who would listen to internet radio, which was about 500 at any given time. Yes. And the people who would listen to the podcast. And it started at like 2,000 downloads. So I was like, oh, I think... The podcast is better than the radio. So I, I, after a year, I started my own podcast company and just moved over to there. Yeah. And now you are a podcast uh, impresario. Mm, sure. Whatever that word means. I'm not really clear, but I'm pretty sure it applies to you. I mean, it makes you uh, a boss. Don't you have to sort of pretty quickly become a person who has to make decisions that some people don't like? Yeah, you know, uh, in the early days, w we didn't have any money, and so we had to hire a lot of um, young people who would work for very little money. And sure. when, when you hire young people like that, they're usually flaky. And so I would have a lot of conversations that I couldn't believe I was having where I'd be like, I don't know why I'm here on a Saturday having to reprimand you. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it did that become my life. I'm a comedian. But yeah, so the early days were a little rough, but um, now it's turned, it, the Earwolf Network, it's turned into a big network with um, 25 shows or something at any given time. And so do you, like if, if you, I don't know, like if your doctor asks you what you do for a living? That would be very uh, impudent of him. I, I see. I don't know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> What's impudent? I've heard it. It would uh, very rude of him, I would say. It would be very gauche to, to for, ask for me a, a personal question. <laughs> for a doctor to ask you, really? He's there to examine my butthole, wow. and that is it. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's as personal as we are getting. How <laughs> yes. dare you inquire about my occupation? So if somebody's <laughs> making small talk with you, I don't know, you're, you know, you, you meet somebody at a cocktail party. People don't have cocktail parties anymore, but if, if cocktail parties were still an actual thing that happened in our society, and somebody's like, hey, have one together. I would love to have the cocktails. The two similar voice guys. <laughs> cocktail party. Cocktails with these two exact same guys. <laughs> Coming soon to Earwolf. Um, what do you say? Do you say you're a comedian? Do you say you're a podcaster? I, you know, for a long time early in my career when I just, I started out as a comedian and then I got hired on Mr. Show as a writer and those guys, Bob Odenkirk and David Cross said, hey, don't write stuff for yourself. 
Um, you know, you're not going to be on the show. Which so then I just kind of said I was a writer all the time, even though then they gave me a lot of parts and I was on the show. <laughs> and um, but I I had it in my head after that that I was kind of a writer. I didn't perform a lot. So nowadays I'm I I sort of want to say oh I'm a writer, but you know I don't know I produce some television shows and direct some and mm-hmm. act on some. So I don't know. I just kind of say beloved entertainer. Right. Yeah. Icon to a generation. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of TV shows you produced, I caught the uh, Michael Bolton Valentine's. Big Sexy Valentine's Day special on Netflix. It's a good time. It's still up. It doesn't have to be Valentine's Day to watch it. That's right. We uh, we may have made a mistake in calling it that because people think it needs to be Valentine's Day to watch it. So 364 days a year, no one is watching it. But right. it's up there. Yeah, yeah, On yeah. Netflix. You're it's... like the Irish band that works for a week every year. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm curious because I, I had some gossip on uh, Michael Bolton. Ooh, that, dish, sister. Okay, I'll tell you. So I knew a guy who um, claimed to be friends with one of Michael Bolton's children and said that he was invited to a birthday party at that person at his house. At and, Michael Bolton's at house. At Michael Bolton's house. Okay. And because these were still like college age kids, so it would have been still living at home. And that in Michael Bolton's backyard, Michael Bolton had a statue of Michael Bolton. <laughs> that, quite honestly, we wrote a character for Michael Bolton mm-hmm. that imagined he would have something like that. Yeah. But hearing that he has that is, that's a dream come true. So what, I, is, what is your sense of the man? I guess what I'm asking is, did you know, you know, Bolton, I know how it looks and stuff. He's got to sell records to ladies and uh, middle-aged, middle-aged Chardonnay Zinfandel drinkers. Hey, but, you're describing me. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe maybe you're his target demo as well. But um, but he actually gets it. He fully gets the joke. Or, or did you have to go, hey, Michael Bolton, love your music, voice of a generation, um, but we were thinking maybe it might be fun to send yourself up a little bit. Well, I think it started with Akiva Schaffer from The Lonely Island. Yep. Um, when those guys wrote... Uh, the Jack Sparrow video for him, and I think he was very nervous about it. He he'll talk about this. He he was very nervous. He didn't know how it would be received. He um the the first draft of it was super super dirty, and he said he couldn't do that, and so they rewrote it. Um, but I, I he he talks about how he was there at Saturday Night Live when it premiered, and he was pacing around in the wings and just super nervous, thinking it was going to bomb. And then everyone loves it, and so people around the world will go to his shows and they'll be wearing Captain Jack Sparrow hats. And so he loves that uh, demographic that he's appealing to now. So he's in on it. He really he came to Akiva about the special and said, I, I want to do a special with you. Akiva came to me um, knowing that I knew how to do it. Um, and so we just worked on it together. And he was a dream to work with. He He gets it. He gets that... Um, he can have a really serious singing career and then have a career doing comedy as well mm-hmm. because you can't just sing 365 days a year. You know, he only does concerts maybe 150 nights a year. What is he going to do the rest of the time? He should just do comedy. Just make people laugh. Exactly. Right. Uh, yeah, he seems very comfortable breaking into song all the time. And obviously you wrote that for him. That's but his he, sweet spot. He just seems really comfortable breaking into song. He's got that falsetto dialed up at any given time. We would we 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 knew we that was just gold. So we would shout it out to him <laughs> and just say, sing this line a lot of times. And they weren't planned to be sung. But there was there was at one point his girlfriend breaks up with him in the special and yeah. he screams, no. And we were like, hey, sing it instead. And he was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and it's so funny. And so we kept a lot of those in. It's really fun. So uh, I have a signature segment that I do here on the show. It's called... A um, sig uh, Yeah, exactly. It's called So I Saw on Your Wikipedia That. <laughs> Wait, that is nobody's, every interviewer's signature segment. I, I, I disagree. I disagree, <laughs> I, I think. I defy anyone out there doing an interview show uh-huh. to do any more research than <laughs> Wikipedia. I watch CNBC for you, Scott Ackerman. All right, thank you. Um, yeah, well, it's all about the branding, and nobody's calling it that, so this is my signature segment. I saw on your Wikipedia that you hosted a public access show that I find very, very interesting, and I would like to know more about what the nature of this show was. It was entitled Centurion Highlights, which uh, the Centurions were our high school mascot uh, in Cypress High School in Orange County, and uh, my friend had this show already. Uh, my friend Craig, he was the host of it, and he Craig was a guy who was on the debate team, and he wanted to be a politician or a lawyer. He I, he ended up becoming a lawyer. I got um, those those guys are weird. The guys not not the guys who become lawyers, the guys who know they want to be lawyers in high school. Well, the well, yeah, but the guys who want to be politicians in high school too, they're like forward thinking, like twenty five years ahead. Right. Well, and I've always said you, you got to bear this in mind when you see the people who are on TV are. Uh, it's almost like good comedians make you like forget that they're doing comedy. They just seem like they're talking but when mm-hmm. you go see a bad one you can see how much work goes into it well the right. comedians who make it to the national i'm sorry the politicians who make it to <laughs> look the, is there any difference these <laughs> I days mean, can, i mean can we get real here for a second who make it to the national stage have, have are really good at it and for the most part even if they seem really bad at it you should see the with the, the right the, with the ground no that all, all like, of the politicians these days they they come up with one line if you ever watch something like the rachel maddow show or something like that and when they do an interview someone will have one kind of clever line that they've thought of or their staffer thought of mm-hmm. you know something to the effect of they call this the skinny repeal this should be the skin and bones repeal and then they run out of stuff to say, and then they go back to it. They're like, like I said, it's the skinny repeal. It's the skinny. So yeah, you know. yeah, yeah. I loved uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, improvised lines during the, during the debates. Very, very, very. What very was natural. the one that she did about? Oh God, we were making fun of it for so long. It was uh, uh, oh, it was a popular expression at the time. God, I can't pull it. But, yeah, I yeah. apologize. I've I've done my best to wipe those debates out of my right out of my memory. <laughs> but I've met a couple people along the way who want to be in politics. You know, I met met them when I was young people, and they were young people, uh, and um and they were really creepy. Like this, it's a really creepy individual that comes to the conclusion they want to go into politics. Not inherently creepy. In theory, it's a nice thing to do with your life, but right. in practice, it's when creepy. you when you hear about those stories about Paul Ryan sitting around in keggers dreaming of taking people's health care away. Right. It's like, what type of person is that? You know? Right. And, be- and that's my point is bear that in mind. Every single person in politics is, is that person. It, right. takes, it takes a creep to get into politics. Right. And I think that we, we, we forget that about them sometimes. Right. But my friend Craig was great. Yeah. I no, no, no. Craig's that. awesome. I'll say I have nothing but good things to say about <laughs> but Craig. But he was very serious is what I'm trying to say. So yeah. he, he was doing the show. It was a show designed to highlight, as they say, Centurion highlights, uh, certain things that were going on in our high school and he was doing it very seriously like a news broadcast and then they asked me to do a segment on it and um i was a big david letterman aficionado and um or acolyte and i i really uh i ended up doing a, a three or four minute piece about the town and how it got its name that was pretty much just a letterman kind of ripoff or homage 
and they thought it was the funniest thing ever. And so then, you know, I mean, kids are flaky, so people would drop out. So Craig and I ended up like hosting it together for a while. And then Craig had to drop out for a while. So I was just hosting it by myself and just turned it into like a Letterman style talk show after that. In that, I've heard, read on your Wikipedia, you regard as like a prototype for kind of everything that you've done since. Well, I, I showed that piece that I mentioned, the, the three or four minute Letterman-esque piece. Um, I showed it at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Oh, uh, brave of you. Jen Kirkman had a show where you could bring in stuff that you'd done as a kid or early in your career that you were embarrassed by. And I was like, ah, I mean, this is dumb. I'll, just, I'll show this. I showed it and she came up to me backstage and was like, I asked you to bring something embarrassing, not something you would be doing now. <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess my sense right. of humor hasn't really improved. Since right, I right, was right. In high or you could just roll the last episode of the podcast if that doesn't right. work out. Um, so I saw on your Wikipedia that you worked on an Andy Dick pilot. Oh, yeah. What is every person who has ever spent five minutes around Andy Dick has an Andy Dick story? What is your Andy Dick story? Andy was a real pleasure to work with. And I'm friendly um, with him. I, 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 oh, great. I, I love him words and all. Yeah, he was a real pleasure to work with at that period in, in time um, because he had uh, an ankle monitor on oh at God. the time. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and so he was pretty much not confined to his his house, but that's what we worked out of his house. And mm -hmm. he was a dream and a pleasure, and I really love Andy. Um, now, that said, maybe six months earlier, I had been in the UCB Theater. I um, produced a show there for 10 years, Comedy Death Ray, a stand-up showcase, and um, Bob Odenkirk was on stage. And I guess Andy... Uh, had been drinking at Birds or something next door and yep. and came in and saw Bob on stage and just started yelling at him and started arguing with him. And, and Bob was so, like, kind of empathetic and just saying, hey, man, I mean, this isn't the place for this. I'm really worried about you. You're such a good guy. And Andy, like, burst into tears and was like, Bob, I love you. I'm so sorry I did this. Um, I apologize. I'm going to leave. And um, he walked out the door. And as he was leaving, he goes, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Andy. Yeah. Um, Has anybody made that documentary yet? That just people uh, tell their Andy Dick stories? Oh, yeah. Almost like yeah. Uh, the aristocrats or something. Right. But the, the punchline is always Andy. It's <laughs> I mean, the punchline is pretty much always the same, but yeah, there's so many different ways to to get there. You know, yeah. whether he's spitting on your girlfriend, or I've heard him uh, uh, getting into people's cars. I mean, there's yeah, I, I mean, I hate to almost joke about it because yeah. it kind of makes me sad a little bit. But he's he's such a great guy. Um, he really is when he, really he is, when yeah. he's not drinking. I hope that I mean, you know, I hope that he can get there <laughs> yeah 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 well he's he is uh, a very very sensitive soul which is i think his blessing mm -hmm. and his curse mm -hmm. um so you worked on some motion pictures some of which uh, have been made and, and some of which i don't know if you were still involved with them when they came out i'm mm -hmm. guessing that you have done you've been involved with some movies either writing scripts or doctoring scripts yeah i pretty much the first movie i wrote that got me a lot of jobs almost got made and at one point was going to get made with Rain Wilson as the lead and Bob Odenkirk directing. Um, and then the the studio head, Brad Gray, actually um, gave it a red light at the last second, right as we were about to like go into production. And so Rain then had to go do The Rocker instead. Mm -hmm. um, 
so that was the first one I wrote. And then the second one I wrote was the Mr. Show movie. I co-wrote that with, you know, the, the other guys in the Mr. Show uh, team. And then after that, I pretty much for 10 years, I wrote two, maybe three films a year, uh, either rewriting someone else's or writing my own. And practically none of them got made. Yeah, that's it's an amazingly inefficient industry and, and i was paid very well for it that's the part that no one could my parents couldn't understand they're mm-hmm. like how do you make money you're not making anything i know somebody who built a mansion in venice not making getting <laughs> right. movies that that never got made yeah the the closest really of anything was shark tale i worked on the the movie shark tale mm-hmm. i actually was writing the sequel shark tale 2 so many unanswered questions after um, the first one. and shark tale 2 honestly is one of the best scripts that i ever wrote it's it is. Re- it's really really funny uh, I was very proud of it. We turned it in um, to DreamWorks, and they said it was the best script they'd ever gotten, and they were not going to make it. <laughs> Why? Because uh, Shark Tale 1 didn't make oh. – uh, it needed to – and this is insane. At the time, it only made $175 million, which um, at the time, animated films hadn't saturated the marketplace yet. So there weren't so many of them. So 175 was considered low. Now mm-hmm. it's like – Something makes 175 million. You're rushing something into production yeah, for a sequel uh, now, dude. I'm going to be taking my child to motherfucking nut job too. Right? Yeah. That's I never. Live. I saw the poster for that the other day. I'd never even seen Nut Job One or heard of Nut Job One. It was particularly brutal. It was my son's right. first movie, so unfortunately, a Ooh. terrible, terrible movie has this has like, become like this really the gold important standard. Pl- place. Well, no, <laughs> right. no, no, no. He didn't even like it. He didn't even care about it. But it, 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 it's this very important like memory for us. Is this awful, right. awful, uh, horrific movie but i wonder if you're doing all that stuff you must have worked on some projects that were pretty um apparently horrendous i have i have friends who ended up in the same kind of Mm -hmm. groove that you were in for a while and there was a lot of like uh, okay can you write um you know the magnificent seven only they live in an aquarium yeah, you know, I, I remember the ones I passed on a lot because those are the ones that ended up getting made. Uh, up the Creek, I believe, and Juana Man. I remember being like, oh, these are terrible. Nothing will ever, these will never get made. Uh, one I really liked was Harold and Kumar. Mm-hmm. I thought that one was really good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, and that, that was one that I was trying to work on. Um, I think I wrote part of Scary Movie. Three, I feel like I, uh, we we were asked. My former partner and I were asked to write a script to that in a week, and uh, a full like hundred and twenty page thing. And so we just wrote jokes, 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 jokes. Um, the dumbest and sometimes fun. And looking back on it, it was a really funny script. And I think some of it made it into the the movie. I've never seen it. Um, but it's kind of a neat exercise. Just you have to write a movie in a week. You're just going to do stuff you wouldn't ordinarily. Yeah, do. it was actually freeing because a lot of times when you're working on a script, you can sit there and labor over it. And, yeah. and I used to be like that, where I would sit there and it would take six months for a first draft. Sometimes, you know, and 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 part of the thing was I really loved or I really wanted them to be good. So I remember there was one film about triplets who were all covering for their one triplet at work. Uh, and it, it was oh, like a romantic comedy yeah. that they all got, you know, mixed up for each other. There was one about... Did they all fall in love with the same chick? 
No, they all they all had it was a uh, women, but it was all uh, uh, which is possible still <laughs> that women, they fall hey, in hey, love hey, with hey, a woman. Two thousand seventeen, women can be triplets, <laughs> um, <laughs> but they all fell in love with different guys. But all of the guys thought they were very schizophrenic all the time because oh. they would be hot and cold, right. you know, depending on which one was playing the one. That's you know? fun. Yeah, it was really fun. Um, and uh, you know, so it was like that. You'd I, I'd spend a lot. I wrote something for Zach Galifianakis, but where he was like a monster hunter. Um, like around the time G-Force came out and they wanted it to be the next G-Force and then Zach decided not to do it. And so it was, it was always like that where you would get close on something, you'd put a lot of time into it, you'd feel really good about it. And then, you know, you get that inevitable call, which was, right. hey, we're not going forward on that. And yeah. so it became what I expected. Right. And I, the money is nice, so nobody should cry for people in that situation. But uh, it, I, I can't think of another area of, of entertainment that is even remotely comparable, where you can you can be you gameplay can, employed and you, can, and you can work on a You can be a years. massive success, yeah. too. I was making a ton of money. Yeah. And so, but that's why I was doing the show at UCB the entire time because um, nothing was happening in my professional life in terms of like actual product. And it was just so great to go to the UCB theater and be able to do a weekly show and have people go, wow, this is fun. Put it up on stage. Yeah. You know, Um, I think I also saw in that um, uh, CNBC interview no it was on it was i'm sorry i heard you on wtf wow you've really done uh, by the way i went way beyond wikipedia wikipedia is just the you've done way more is uh, the amuse bouche you've done way more research than mark does on wtf Really? Yeah, he he. I think he famously doesn't do any yeah, research. Well, he says that, but I don't think he Google's people. But like, well, he, he certainly didn't know anything about my career. So, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's fine because clearly, if he maybe you're if he has like a, a movie actor on, I feel like he watches like their movies for like three days. Maybe maybe, maybe you need to be in movies. I don't know. Yeah. 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 yeah I should get in movies. You're right. <laughs> that would be really really <laughs> I should good be a for movie you. Star. Um. Yeah. Why are you just thinking of this now? Um. I. Uh, so something that you said to him, and correct me if I'm wrong, is. That that you had or maybe still have trouble when you perform stand-up getting the ball rolling in front of crowds that aren't already pre-sold on you because most comedians do get up and do the, well, here's the thing you got to know about me and let me ritually shame myself. And then now that we know what your little angle, you know, classically, like a very good one is Roseanne Barr, Domestic Goddess. Right. Everything follows from that. Yeah, the old Mitzi way of like, what's your story? How how are we going to sell your story more than your jokes? Yeah. Is that... Was that where that came from? Sort of, yeah. I mean, from what I understand, uh-huh. is is it was very important in the seventies to they sort of came up with the formula of if you can sell your story and your personality, then we can get you on the Tonight Show, we can get a sitcom, you know, and that's that's where everyone's sort of comedy became focused on is is like mm-hmm. here's what sets me apart and here's yeah i mean look at i mean great comedians like look at ray romano he goes on letterman and tells stories about his his wife and kids and they turn that into a sitcom you know letterman like produced that so yeah, right. so that's what the end game was you mm-hmm. know i mean tool time yeah. Tim tool time taylor very similar that was all from a stand-up of course because I, I do a little bit of stand-up and i it's funny it resonated with me because i feel i'm well aware of having the exact same issue the difference between you and me is i don't have 
hundreds of thousands of people who are already pre-sold on me. Right, yeah. And it's just like, <laughs> you almost just want to say, like, I'm just going to tell, I, I thought about some stuff and I got some pretty right. funny jokes. And Frankly, you don't really need to know me. Like, it's not, I'm just sort of a conduit to this I, thing. I think I was maybe a little in my head about it, too. I actually, this last tour I did last year, mm-hmm. um, we traveled to four different countries and played to like 30,000 people total. Mm-hmm. Um, I decided I was never going to ever have anything to talk about when I went out on stage. Um, so I would just go out and do a little bit of crowd work and then just kind of talk, you know, and it was, and, uh, it's kind of insane when you think about it to be, you know, cause we were playing some big houses, you know, like sometimes up to 3000 people and you pulled it off. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's not, it's not the greatest. Like if I were doing a stand up tour, I yeah. would want to work on some material, mm-hmm. but it's the opposite of what my fear sort of used to be which was oh god here come the jokes everyone's judging the material and if the first joke doesn't go well you're like in a hole whereas now i'm just like hey i'm just gonna be me and i'm just gonna go up and talk and if i have something funny to say i'll slip into it you know what i mean yeah i got you and that's i think a better way to do stand-up is when you're not in your head and focused on your material yeah, I should try that sometime. <laughs> Give me a couple of years. So I have to let you go in a minute. Um, I, I, I guess my last question is, so you have a podcast that's so successful. It, I guess you wouldn't say you spun your podcast off into a TV show, but sort of the public, that's certainly the way it seemed. Wow, that podcast got so big, they made a TV show out of it. And you had a long, successful run, and then you wrap it up. Is it is it hard to keep doing it and to keep, putting your heart and soul into it when there isn't that like upward trajectory anymore. I guess I compare it to like the band that makes the double concept album. Right. It's always like, well, what the fuck is your next album right. going they, to be? Rush keeps wanting to remake 2012. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that what it was? 2112. Sorry. Oh, uh, sorry, 20, Rush 2112, right. Uh, um, you know what? That I see what you're saying, but the TV show was never the end game for doing a podcast for me. The reason I started doing the podcast and started doing the show on Indie 1031 was purely what I was talking about was creative frustration at work where I, I you know, wanted people to hear what I had to say, you know, right. and I wanted to, to get it out there and I wanted to have something that went out to people. So that that to me is regardless of the TV show being on the air or not, um, that's what I want to do with the podcast is I want to have fun. And I want to I want to actually put it out. So that has not changed. I mean, um, it actually is easier now that I don't have the television show because I I was having to to work all day, every day on a television show and any free time I had record a podcast. So it's actually like a lot better. Oh, that's good. Well, congratulations on the 500th episode of Comedy Bang Bang. It is available now, and people can hear the preceding 4.99 and more at Earwolf.com. You are at Scott Ackerman on all applicable social media. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Very lovely to meet you. Thank you. You are listening to The Tully Show. You have seen Chris Parnell on Saturday Night Live. You can hear him as the voice of Jerry in Season 3 of Rick and Morty, which debuts this weekend on Adult Swim. And you can hear Chris Parnell here on The Tully Show next on Faction Talk. Thank you for downloading The Tully Show. Now, let's take our relationship to the next level. Please take a second to rate, review, subscribe to the show. If you're listening on your phone... You can probably do it while you listen, right? Don't ask me. I still listen to these fucking things on an iPod. Do it up, and thanks again. 
We are back on the Tully Show here on Faction Talk. I'm joined in studio by uh, a man who can be heard on the Adult Swim series, Rick and Morty, which, which returns for season three, I guess it is, July 30th. Very nice to meet you, Chris Parnell. Very nice to meet you, Michael. I uh, did not realize until today that you are partially bionic. <laughs> I wish. I wish. No, I had to have rotator cuff surgery. So, Oh. I've got a sling on for a month. Isn't that a shoulder thing? It is. It is. It was up here. It was up here. But yeah, so I keep the arm sort of relatively immobile. Now, is that a repetitive stress thing? Are you doing some relief pitching? <laughs> it can be a repetitive stress uh, that causes it. I I think it was partly that. I think it started a long time ago. I put some shelves up, and I had frozen shoulder, and then we had a son, and I was holding him a lot. And uh-huh. I, you know, you like you hold your kid in the your non dominant arm, so you can do stuff with your dominant right. arm and uh, or hand. So yeah, that's I think was part of it too. You're the second person I've met this week who suffered from frozen shoulder. Yeah. So it's more of an epidemic I think than people are realizing. Yeah, I've, I've heard of quite a few people that have had it. It's uh, it's delightful. So you you are a dad? I am a dad. Yeah. One one child? No, I got a three year old and a four month old. Oh, that's the really really fun times. <laughs> yeah, it's a little it's a little intense. I'm curious. You there's a certain kind of guy, not that you play all the time, but that you are often associated with, and I'm I'm curious how how in what ways you might be different from the kind of character that is your stock and trade because you uh, kind of seem like a suburban dad <laughs> yeah. yeah i kind of am i mean that's it's a it's a fair question uh i don't know how different i am from say jerry smith or cyril figus um you know i tend to play sort of uh put upon and or pathetic <laughs> and or sort of bland uh, personalities in these characters, which I love, which is great. Uh, I, I hope I'm a little... I hope I'm a little more interesting and a, and a little bit of a better, more thoughtful person than they are. Right, a little bit more self-reflective and self-aware, I would, exactly. I would assume. Um, I, I, I group you with a couple of other guys, and I don't know if you'd be flattered by this comparison, where uh, the, the two people I'm thinking of are Billy Crystal... And Gilbert Gottfried. Oh, wow. In the sense that I feel like you guys have always been playing, sort of shooting, aspiring to play a character who is older than you actually are. And now you are actually starting to arrive (laughs) at the age that you have been portraying. Right, right. So I'm curious. I can understand how it would come naturally to you to play that kind of character now. But when you were in your 20s, why do you think that was something that you were already able to project? Do you have a very silly dad? Uh, no, no. I mean, I think part of it's my voice. I've always had a bit of a deeper voice and I've got, uh, I think just sort of a, a, a built in gravitas. I guess I'm a, you know, kind of a more serious person. And so I think that tends to lend itself to playing those kinds of characters. But yeah, I mean, it started at the groundlings mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, it went on to SNL and then Anna Gasteyer and I got to play husband and wife, both at the at the Groundlings and at SNL and then on Suburgatory a few years ago um, as these, you know, suburban middle-class people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've actually always been curious about Groundlings. When you're there, it's such an established hotbed of, uh, you know, it's like a, a feeder system for Saturday Night Live. That is not, um, people who get into Groundlings are aware that that is 
hopefully the ultimate goal. Right. Is that something, how, I'm not going to ask how conscious you are of that because I'm sure you're very conscious of it, but is that something that gets discussed? Which of us are going to be on SNL or is it just kind of like, I got to take out so-and-so or so-and-so is never going to be on Saturday Night Live and we all know it? <laughs> well, here's the thing. When I, I, I did The Groundlings so long ago, um, it was before it was clear that it was a feeder to SNL. Uh, Phil Hartman uh, at that point um, and Lorraine Newman, I may have been the only two groundlings at that point on the show. Okay. While I was going through the classes, while I was, I think I was in the Sunday show, or maybe I was already in the main show, that's when Will Ferrell, Sherry uh, O'Terry, and Chris Kattan got on. So that was, so they were the beginning of the, you know, this new influx of people from the groundlings to SNL. So at that point, mm-hmm. and then, then Anna and I got on there. And some other, and then you know the Kristen Wiig and the Taryn and every you know all these other people. Um, so yeah, it's obvious now that it can do that. But when I was there, it, it wasn't obvious. And also, I had the good fortune to not know that SNL talent scouts were even looking at me. Sure. So there was no knowledge on my part of that there were people out there at this particular show. You know, so I was just able to just do the show and not think about all that. So what did you think was the goal? Like if I'd asked you when you were in a year into Groundlings, where did you see your your career going? I, you know, I thought I would end up, uh, hopefully, I mean, I didn't assume that I would, but mm-hmm. I'd hope to end up with, you know, doing, you know, movies and sitcoms. So you pretty much have the career that you set out to? I, I do. I do more or less. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. I'm very lucky. Um. I only have one Saturday Night Live question, and by the way, there's it's, this is interesting to no one but me, but I used to live in New York, and one time, I, as I was often wont to do, I got a tall can of beer and got on the subway at 2 or 2.30 in the morning and went back to Brooklyn, and I was sitting across from you on the subway, oh, really? and you were reading uh, a script, and I was like, he is for sure reading a Saturday Night Live script. This oh. is the cool... I'm, I'm like officially <laughs> in the New York club. <laughs> yeah, I well, you know, I... I always tried to memorize all my sketches that I was in. Okay, well, let's talk about that. That's an unusual trait among Saturday Night Live performers. What is up with that? (laughs) Well, you know, it's probably obsessive-compulsive tendencies, for one thing. Um, Just wanting to be as prepared as I felt like I could be. And I felt like knowing the lines and not having to rely on the cue cards you know, allowed me to hopefully better act in the scene with the other people. Yeah, see, that all makes perfect sense to me. Why do you think so many of your fellow SNL performers over the years did not share that attitude and approach? Well, I think a lot of them were more talented than me and were able to just play it off the cards. You know, sometimes it didn't always serve me well because some sometimes a set on SNL will be very deep. And if you just try to play it you know, for real to the other actors, the camera's just getting profiles of you. So the cue cards serve to bring your face out front, you know, to the fourth wall. Oh, that's an interesting perspective because more often as a viewer, I observe it being the other thing of where being Christopher Walken is looking off into seven o'clock and you're well, like, well, the only reason he's doing that is because that's where the card is. That happens as well. That's that's the other side of it. Yeah. Which right. is which, you know, for me, I was wanted to avoid that and also it's nice to have eye contact with the the fellow your fellow actor and a lot of times that just wasn't the case because people were just reading off the cards and i i have no judgment about that and i did it too but uh yeah one time some lines got changed between dress and air 
and uh, nobody told me about the changes. Oh. So I was just doing the memorized script from dress. Now here comes Mr. Memorizes His Line, screwing everything up. Yeah, and I, I screwed it up a little bit, you know. I mean, it got back on track, but, uh, uh-huh. but yeah. Um, you were known and are still known as being somebody who didn't crack and didn't break and didn't laugh. I'm curious, to the extent you feel comfortable saying it, what is your opinion of Saturday Night Live performers who broke more often than maybe was strictly necessary well you know there were times at which jimmy would you know it would annoy me he and horatio and the degree to which they would you know uh just let them self let themselves fall into fits of giggles but you know the fact is the audience almost always loved it that's the know? that's the shittiest part <laughs> well you know i i think I I am I'm a much I think I'm probably just a more uptight person than those guys are um and they're you know they're just they're just having more fun you know I think right. and uh, and sometimes you know I uh, you know it was to a fault I think on on my part I mean I I don't regret that I didn't break but you know, when you see somebody do that, it's very humanizing, and it's like, and especially if you can tell they're trying not to, like Rachel Dratch and the Debbie Downer at Disneyland sketch. You know, right. that's that's a so whole funny. that's a whole different story. When yeah, you're watching yeah, yeah. somebody fight the good fight, right. but when you're just watching the Carol Burnett Show 2005, <laughs> that's that's a different. But I love the Carol Burnett Show when I was a kid. You know, sure, and, and so I, did I. Yeah. And uh, in their defense, there are times that it's impossible to write a consistently hilarious 90 minute show every week. Sometimes they were able to prop up some weaker material yeah, yeah. with the forcing the, the the Tim Conway Harvey exactly Harvey Corman stuff. So, uh, how many television shows are you currently on? Um, let's see. So there's Rick and Morty, there's Archer, there's Elena of Avalor, um, on the Disney channel. Oh, yes. Um, I have a, I have a recurring part on that. Uh, Peabody and Sherman, um, on Netflix, The Crudes on Netflix. Um, these are all animated. Um, and then, you know, occasional guest star parts. I did a guest star part in Kimmy Schmidt this year. Uh, and then. You did. Yeah. You did. That's right. I, yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but um, it's very it, good. It you was, did well. Oh, good, good. It was fun to do, uh, for sure. And then I, the, the big news for me, but besides having all these awesome animate animation jobs, is uh, I'm going to do this new series called Collegeish, which is a spinoff of Blackish, um, and uh, by Kenya Barris, and that starts shooting, I think, at the end of August. In live action, obviously. Yeah, yeah, single camera. That'd yeah. be cool to get yeah. back in front of a camera. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's I that's kind of that's my ideal job is a single camera half hour uh, comedy. Mm-hmm. Um that's well written, which I have no doubt this will be. How important is it, and I'll include the animated stuff in this, for you to actually like a project to take a paycheck from a project? It's 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 fairly important. Um, so you do you would turn things down because the animated I stuff I feel like you, it's just a pass. Nobody even nobody even criticizes somebody for doing a bad animated show. No, I mean yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean I'm I I definitely I say no to things frequently. Um, That's a great problem to have. It is a great problem, and and it's not always easy. Um, but and 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 if it's animation it's especially not easy and and I don't usually say no to animation jobs especially if it's an offer mm-hmm. it's easier to say no to an audition because it's like no I don't I don't like this part I don't I don't like you know this doesn't look like fun to me I don't know if this is going to be any good whatever uh and so you pass and it turns out to be the Simpsons I'm kidding that didn't happen um 
<laughs> but but other if stuff. If eight year old like you had it to do all over again, <laughs> right. Dan Kestelin out of the world exactly. never would have heard of him. That's right. Um, and uh, it seems on Rick and Morty that that Justin does a fair amount of improvising. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it almost just seems like this improvisation on top of improvisation <laughs> to where it's no longer tethered in any way to any linear reality. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. It does not seem like there would be quite as much leeway for you to do the same. How much improvising do you do on Rick and Morty? Um, you know, there's there's there there's certainly amount of a certain amount of freedom to change words around or to say something in a way that feels better and they're open to that you know but as with archer the scripts are so strong to begin with they're just so well written and they spend so much time crafting these scripts it's the same way with 30 rock you know um or or kimmy schmidt they they spend so much time creating these jokes and these worlds and it's i'm not brilliant enough by and large to go in and just improvise something that's going to be funnier than what's already on the page you know right that's humble of you to feel that way. It shows a huge hit in my house. I regret turning my five-and-a-half-year-old son onto it because <laughs> there was a point in time where he was so little that it really just didn't matter. These are just animated blobs running around. But then right. he started to figure out what it meant for a man to reach into another man's you know, neck and pull his spine out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and by that point, we'd already got him the Show Me What You Got t-shirt. <laughs> so that was that was problematic. <laughs> Um, uh, I'm curious, I'm not prying at all into your personal finances, but I've always wondered with doing an animated series, like if somebody is doing one animated series, is that, and it's a name actor, is that person like making a comfortable living from that one series? By and large, no. Okay. It depends on the show. Um, Archer has been on long enough that that actually pays fairly well. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick and Morty, you know, we're, we're in our third season, so it's better than your average show but most of the time most actors are just making scale which is not nothing you know it's like 900 and something dollars uh, an episode or, or or a session right um and that's not nothing and if if you do if you're working on enough things at once you certainly can get by just fine Kristen Schaal is probably making like one billion dollars <laughs> per year yeah I'm sure I'm sure Kristen does all right yeah and, and, and she uh she deserves it uh, it seems just based on the um, the trailer that was released for season three of Rick and Morty that they've sort of doubled down on the weird. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I guess so. Um, I mean, yeah, it's probably probably even a little weirder still than it has been in the past. That's true. Yeah. Do you have a sense? Is it something that's in your mind or is it something that's talked about among the people who work on the show that? Okay, like when I first found the show, I was like, wow, this is this is weird. This is cool. I like weird stuff. I've never seen this before. And then it was like, hey, you know that weird show? I, I actually think it might be very good. Right. And then you got to season two where you're like, okay, this is actually great. And it's a growing consensus. We can't take my kid anywhere with the shirt on without people stopping us. So there's you, you've, you, I'm sure you've felt the, the mushrooming popularity. Is there a sense that... Okay, right here, right now, we are making a show that has a chance to be like an all-time classic, and we are in the prime years right now. I I like to think so. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know if Justin and Dan uh, see it that way. I mean, I I think they obviously believe in the show and they love the show, and and want to see it go on for forever, which we all do. Um, it they spend you know it's been I think a year and a half since season two. It's a long time to wait, but they just 
work so hard to get the scripts and the you know the stories and all of that where they want them and they and they have a really high standard you know which which shows in the final product obviously the animation is also fantastic um i love sci-fi so it's a great show for me i love it from the sci-fi perspective from the portals and the you know the multiple dimensions and then you know there's this family aspect of and it's funny I mean, yeah, I think it's got the potential. Uh, I mean, I think it it already is a classic, if in as much as a three year old show can be a classic. It's it's pretty it's a pretty special show. Yeah, I think anything is a classic when you know there's a certain kind of person, and I'm guessing you are this kind of person. I was this kind of person where you are a very into comedy, maybe even going to full blown comedy nerd. And as you come of age, there's just like you have to go back and watch X, Y, and Z. And I think there's a good chance that this show answer, enters that pantheon of things that, you know, 15 years from now, if you are serious about comedy, you've seen this show and probably enjoyed it. Hopefully, yeah. I mean, that would be swell. A, a buddy of mine had not sort of caught on to it yet, didn't really know it. And he just started binge watching it the other day. And he just texted me uh, a gif of a guy clapping, you know. He's like, well done, sir. Um, which was nice. I mean, I'm not surprised he liked it. Of course he liked it. He's got good taste. And it's, it's a good great show. show. It's a great yeah. show. Do you uh, do you ever feel like you are over the hump as a performer? Because to me, outwardly, I believe you're like you're a made man. You're a known commodity, and you're I hate the I hate the word, but you're a brand, and right. you, and you've almost officially become a brand when you can become a commercial spokesman and stuff like that. You're the go to guy for this or that. And as I said, you're really just entering your prime as a as a fifty year old. <laughs> I hope you're right. Man. I hope you're right. Do you? Uh, I'm sure you want to answer this humbly, but honestly, do you feel like, wow, cool, I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm, I'm in entertainment for life? You know, I, uh, there's a part of me that, that believes that, you know, but you know, like any actor or anybody doing any job these days, it's like you never, you never, you never can predict what's going to happen, you know. Mm -hmm. So, I hope that's the case. Yeah. Um, you know. I like to imagine there's a certain amount of money I could have in the bank that would make me feel like, okay, I'm set. If I don't ever work another day, my kids are in college, I can still maintain a, a nice lifestyle, I can still go on vacations. Um, I don't know that I'll ever get to that point. Right. But uh, and, I, and I like working. You know, it's fun to work. Sure, sure. Uh, it, but then, yeah, I, I read a thing in The New Yorker the other day about some guy who um, was a uh, a uh, a screenwriter who was working, not getting things made, but working and and sought out for work for like eight or nine years. Who's now uh, working, uh, doing odd jobs on Task Rabbit. Oh wow! And you know, yeah, there but for the grace of God, exactly. There's only so many seats at the table, and and it's like the it's like the uh, Welcome to the Jungle video. There's a fresh faced hopeful getting off a Greyhound bus every single day here. It's true. It's true. So yeah, no, I I never take it for granted that I am over. Any hump. I hope you're right about the age thing, and I do feel that a little bit. And, and one of the writers that I was buddies with at SNL, Eric Sloven, told me, "Like you're, you're just you're always going to work, man. I mean, as you get older, even it's like you're going to be more employable." So I hope he's right. I hope he's right. Um, yeah, take that, young pretty girls. <laughs> uh, yeah. one last thing are you not on social media are you not on twitter i'm not oh that is terrific <laughs> have you have you never been i've never been no and you're not tempted to i'm not i'm really not um you don't go and you don't go and look and see what other people are doing without posting yourself i i do occasionally get on my wife's facebook account to look at my family and see my niece and my cousins um mm -hmm. because I'm, i do miss out on all that for sure that's that's the loss of it but 
I mean, Twitter I have zero desire for, mainly because I just don't want I, – I, I'm, I'm too insecure, I guess, or whatever. I don't want to get a nasty tweet from somebody, you know, for one thing. I think as a comedian there's going to be an expectation that, oh, what did Parnell tweet today? You know, there's, there's, a, there's a weight that I'm going to be tweeting funny things out. And, you know, I'm not a joke writer, you know. Um, and so it's just like, why? Like I have – zero desire to do that yeah i mean you, you ever nothing you said doesn't make sense <laughs> and it is always been funny to me how we may have that expectation of comedians you know nobody when when meryl streep does an interview nobody expects her to be dramatic <laughs> right but right. every time a comedian does something or anything opens their mouth it's supposed to be funny and that is that is a lot of pressure well good for you it seems to be working out just fine for you to uh not um viciously promote yourself yeah you know i mean it's it, I, 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 it, it wouldn't hurt probably if I were, did, did a little bit of that, but I just have so little desire. I imagine you have people who they may have given up by now, but at some point put some pressure on you to do that. You know, not too much. Great. Really. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm really lucky with my with my manager and my agents. Uh, I really like them, and no, they they know who I am. And uh huh. Cool. Yeah. Well, you're living the dream, give or take a rotator cuff. <laughs> Thank you uh, very much for your time. I think I have to send you off to your next interview. Thanks for having me. It was really nice. Uh, Chris Parnell, Rick and Morty comes back to Adult Swim on July 30th. Uh, yeah, buddy. Rock on with your bad self. Thanks, sir. You too.